In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Tom Schlick about building multi-tenant web applications. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 80. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wadden, and today uh, is my pleasure to be speaking to Tom Schlick. How's it going today, Tom? Good, how are you? Awesome. So uh, for anyone who's not familiar with you, do you mind just uh, kind of briefly introducing yourself and talking a little bit about uh, what you do? Sure. Um, My name is Tom Schlick. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, currently working for a company called uh, Oris Intelligence, uh, and we do online price monitoring and brand, or online price monitoring and enforcement for uh, a lot of major brands. Uh, so, you know, when they sell things through Amazon or different retailers, they have policies in place of you know how low they can sell it, how high they can sell it, things like that. So, we monitor that for big brands and kind of give them reports on who's falling in line with their policies. Um, so been doing that for the last six months. Uh, before that, I worked for, uh, for almost eight years on and off with uh, in the real estate sector and actually had a lot of experience with the multi-tenant stuff. And that's that's where a lot of the material for that talk I gave at Laricon uh, came from. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, the reason that I want to have you on the show, which you kind of alluded to, is uh, that I thought it'd be interesting to sort of tackle this topic of building a multi-tenant web applications in general because I think it's a pretty a pretty common thing that people have questions about and I know that uh, with Laravel for example anytime Taylor tweets asking what features people want to see in like new versions everyone's always like multi-tenancy whatever that means is a framework feature who knows but uh, it definitely seems like a topic um that, uh, that people are interested in and, and dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And you gave a, an excellent talk about multi-tenancy in Laravel Laracon US last year. Uh, so I thought you'd be kind of the perfect person to talk to about this stuff. So I guess um, maybe the best place to start is maybe just kind of defining what a multi-tenant app uh, even is. Um, so what I define it as is it's any single instance of software. Um, so things that are running on the same server that serve multiple customers privately. Um, so their data is segmented. If you log in as customer A, you're seeing one set of data. If you log in as customer B, you're seeing another set of data. Um, so that that's probably the simplest way you could put it uh, without getting into the weeds on implementation of how yeah, things yeah. work. So um, what are some well-known examples of uh, multi-tenant apps that might help people kind of frame it correctly in their mind? Um, one of the biggest ones uh, in a really good example would actually be Slack. Okay. Um, so Slack is running, you know, a big infrastructure, obviously, many, many servers. You log in and you're seeing your team with your data. You log in as another login. You see that team with that data. Uh, obviously, they have a way to, you know, switch back and forth between them, but they are segmented silos. Um, so you actually noticed in Slack, um, when you're logging in into another team, you're logging in entirely with a new login. It's not yeah. a single sign-on. So they're actually segmenting theirs um, a little bit differently than a lot of different companies use uh, to segment their data. So that, that kind of alludes to what we're going to get into. But uh, you know, there's there's a thousand different ways to actually code up one of these multi-tenant apps, and that's that's why it's so hard for frameworks to implement multi-tenancy in. A framework because there's so many different ways depending on how you 
how you want to implement it and how your data structured and things like that. Totally. Yeah. I think like another example that comes to mind for me is a, an app like Basecamp or something, right? Where um, you log into your account and now you're kind of like in an app that feels like it's just for you and your company and that there's not really anything else going on. Unlike a tool like Twitter or Facebook or something where basically everyone using the app is like connected and visible to each other in some way. Right. Right. Um, but I feel like there's applications that I run into that feel like they kind of blur the lines a little bit there too. Like, um, for example, like Stripe is an app that you it kind of feels like multi-tenant for the most part in the sense that you have like a private dashboard for whatever business you're looking at. But I know that I have like nine different Stripe accounts, but I log into all of them with just like the same email and password and I can just sort of like toggle around between them. Is that still like qualifies like a multi-tenant app? Um, I would consider it that. So either there's not really a hard line anywhere and that's really again how you implement it but i would consider that a multi-tenant app with shared users mm -hmm. so you have one single login and then you're switching kind of the context that you're looking at totally um so another example of, of that setup would be uh something like uh laravel spark um yeah. so in by default when you create a laravel spark app um, it has the same type of setup where you're logged in as a user account and then you have access to any number of teams that you create. And you can add new teams, add team members to those teams, but you're still in your same login. You don't have to switch accounts or anything like that. You're just basically switching your current context. Yeah. So then what about an app like GitHub? Like GitHub feels to me like less multi-tenant in a lot of ways, but at the same time, you still have this concept of like organizations that have different members and only those people have access to... Um, you know, certain pieces of content and stuff like, is that still a, a multi-tenant app in some sense or are we across that yeah. threshold? In some sense, yes, uh, because half of Git, or I would, I would say probably more than half of GitHub is actually public data. Yeah. Um, and, but it is kind of multi-tenant in, in the way that data is segmented. So obviously you can have private repositories, you can have organizations with public and private repositories, and you know you kind of go down the rabbit hole there of permissions and things like that. But generally, I mean, in, in terms of how you're viewing the data, it, it seems like a multi-tenant app. So I would consider it that, but it's it's definitely a hybrid between kind of a public app with kind of a social network aspect to it. Uh, and then moving into kind of the private multi-tenant type data. Yeah, for sure. And I guess the other thing that makes that interesting is GitHub has their their sort of on-premise version too, right? So obviously it has to be multi-tenant in some sense because they have like a whole product designed to target those people who would want to treat it as like a multi-tenant thing. But yeah, it's very blurry, I find, uh, which makes this sort of an interesting thing. So um, I guess like a big question that comes to mind for me as someone who has never really built out like a large multi-tenant app, um, I see a lot of people asking, you know, questions about what's the best way to do multi-tenancy with Framework X or, or Framework Y. And as someone who hasn't built a multi-tenant app um, in the sense that maybe a lot of other people are, it's, it's easy to sort of look at that question and wonder like, what are they finding hard about it? Because you haven't really had the experience building it to know what sort of weird roadblocks and challenges and hard decisions that you run into when you're trying to build something like that. So I'd be curious to get your take on what some of the most interesting challenges are when building a, a multi-tenant app that you're inevitably going to run up against uh, when you're trying to put one of these things together. Yeah, absolutely. So the biggest one that I've 
run into is the database. Um, so uh, the kind of conventional way to create a multi-tenant app is you have you know your users table, um, and inside that users table you have first name, last name, password, everything like that. But then you also have a key or uh, the call, for instance, tenant ID, um, and that's what segments users depending on what client or what tenant you're logged in as. Um, and you can that's a perfectly valid way to do it, um, but eventually uh, you're going to run into issues based on uh, usage and size and everything of that database. If you have, you know, 100 million users, that that's going to be 100 million users, in, 100 million rows in that database, uh, 100 million posts, you know, and just so on and so forth. Um, so that that's one of the biggest struggles people face uh, is. When they start to create it, how do I structure this? You know, do I really have to um, write all of these kind of where clauses on all of my queries to segment that data apart to make sure I'm not showing customer A's data to customer B? Yeah. Uh, because especially if you're in kind of a regulated industry, um, for instance, I was in the real estate industry, uh, commercial for real estate to be more specific. So these guys were doing hundred million dollar uh, property transactions. If they're showing the wrong data to the wrong client, they could literally have a lawsuit on their hands. Sure. So that's one of those things that you just worry about as a developer. You don't want to expose data from one client to another. Um, and testing can take care of a lot of that. But if you can reduce your points of failure, the, the points that you're actually doing those checks, um, you are a lot better off in the long run. Yeah. Um, I could see that being sort of easy to maybe underestimate the complexity of in a lot of ways. Because a lot of time you're, if you're doing like simple queries, just fetching data and stuff, you you know, a lot of time you're scoping something to the current user or the current project or um, the comments on a current post or, exa- for example, right, like kind of the, the typical examples. And even with like a multi-tenant setup, I guess like to some degree, like a lot of that is going to be the same. But I think where I would anticipate there being complexity and risk of like accidentally showing people data they're not supposed to see is when you get to things like complex reports and stuff where you're already doing like complex joins on tables and now you have to somehow make sure that you incorporate this one other table to make sure that you're uh, limiting stuff or doing fancy stuff with subqueries and stuff i could definitely see how that kind of raises the complexity exponentially there oh yeah absolutely and, and actually one of the biggest problems is things that you're not writing uh so if you think of different active record or uh you know, query builder setups, it kind of handles a lot of this logic for us and we wouldn't think about it. So it's really easy to do a, you know, show all post type query um, that brings back all the posts from the table instead of just my post. Now, frameworks like Laravel and some others have, you know, automatic and global query scopes that will apply themselves. Um, but that's still another piece that you need to maintain and make sure is working properly and is applied correctly um, and then removed if you need it to be removed for certain cases. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of ins and outs to making sure that you're not crossing that boundary of sharing data versus, you know, not sharing data. Yeah, for sure. So I guess then uh, if you're trying to avoid some of these challenges with using this big shared database for every single tenant, you know, what is the alternative then? Um, so, so one that I've gone through in the past, and it's a less common approach, but it definitely is an approach uh, that I've used uh, to great success, is you have a shared database, which contains kind of like a router table. Um, and that says, uh, you know, tenant A, this is their subdomain, and they live in this database. Tenant B lives in this database. Um, and then you basically have a full copy 
uh, of your database uh, for each tenant. So they would have their own users table, their own post table, their own, you know, whatever it would be, uh, tables. And you migrate those separately, and they're kind of exactly that. It's kind of like a having multiple WordPress installs where you would have, you know, just your this one WordPress instance here and another one over here. Um, where that data is completely segmented. Uh, and what's nice about that is you can move things back over the line into that shared database. So if you wanted to have um, separate post tables and separate, um, you know, I don't even know, categories tables, for instance, if you were building a blog, you could have a single user table in your shared database. And, you know, you can kind of blur that line a little bit depending on your use case and how sensitive data is. Uh, but what's really nice about that is um, after you bootstrap that database connection, uh, there's no more uh, scoping those queries on the tenant side of the data. Uh, you would still have to do it on the shared side, but not on the tenant side, which reduces your point of failure, failure to one or two, maybe, depending on uh, how you're implementing it. But Yeah, interesting. So I think like the thing that's most interesting to me about that approach conceptually is if you're building like a multi-tenant application where everyone's data is sort of supposed to be siloed, uh, and you take this like multi-database approach, it's just like a really easy way to kind of get sharding in place. You know what I mean? Because there's a really logical, obvious boundaries to, to shard at. Whereas if you're building something like Facebook and you need to um, scale your databases horizontally because no machine with a hundred terabytes of RAM exists or whatever. Uh, and you have to figure out a way to shard all this like weird interconnected data that can be like a really challenging, um, engineering problem that I think a lot of these companies that are trying to scale really dread. I know like, for example, even though Basecamp is like a multi-tenant database or a multi-tenant application, they they've written posts in the past about how they always seem to just get lucky in the sense that every time they're getting close to that point where they need to start thinking about whether or not they should shard their database or come up with some sharding solution, um, you know, their hosting provider releases a, a new tier of uh, servers where they can just double the RAM that they had before. And it's like, okay, well, that problem just like uh, just vanished uh, for us. So it's definitely like a problem that people, you know, are are avoiding when possible when you're doing something that's like multi-tenant like we're talking about here it sounds like um architecturally it's it's a lot simpler than it might be with something that has like a lot of uh kind of crazy interconnected data and it might be worth just taking that approach from the beginning yeah absolutely and that's um that's one of the things that entirely depends on the type of data you're doing and kind of what you're going to do with that data. Uh, so for instance, at my current uh, employer, um, we have, like I mentioned, we have a lot of brands that uh, have products and things like that. And there's a lot of kind of companies that manage multiple brands. So they want to see reports across all of those brands. Um, so this was obviously set up prior to me joining, but they use the conventional approach of everything in one database uh, because it's a lot easier to do reports over 20 or 30 brands in that case. Uh, versus having to connect to 20 or 30 databases and basically do kind of a map reduce into sure. uh, into a, a main report. So, so in your case, are they doing like reports like across brands in the sense that they're comparing data like within the brands or like averaging things across these different data sets? Yeah, uh, there, there's a lot of uh, checking for trends and things like that. You know, for instance, 
Uh, obviously, Black Friday is a really big time for brands and retailers, uh, so they'll check, um, you know, across brands how data, di- you know, how prices are falling and rising, and who, uh, you know, who kind of triggered it uh, to start price changes because a lot of retailers will follow other ones when they drop prices. Mm. So a lot of things like that where we have to correlate data across many brands or correlate data um, just as kind of a roll-up report to say, you know, here's your you know, snapshot of 2017, here's how all of your brands did compared to the other ones. You know, hey, why is that one there, uh, you know, spiking versus other ones? Um, yeah. So, so, yeah, it really just depends on the type of data you're doing. Uh, now, going back to my previous job, um, all of our clients, their data was completely separate. So we didn't need to share anything. There was no reports across our, our customers. Um, so it made it really easy and really logical to just split that into multiple databases, uh, both from the security standpoint and scaling it. Um, so you'd be able to, you know, when a customer got too big, we just, you know, spun up a new database server and put them on that server. Um, and all that changed was their connection details in that router table. And then our application just automatically knew which database connect to on which server. And we just kept on, you know, kept going. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I guess um, if you were to try and, sort of boil down what the pros and cons are of, of like a single database approach versus like a shared database approach. Uh, with a single database, it sounds like you sort of have the most flexibility in terms of, you know, if you ever did need to do some of this reporting across different customers and stuff, everything is already there. Um, you can always get access at whatever data you want from anywhere. You can join tables in interesting ways that, it's probably going to be a lot harder when you're trying to join, you know, data but from two different database servers or something. But it comes at the cost of trying to be really diligent about managing the privacy of people's data and also like the, the scaling challenges. And then from the multi-database point of view, um, you're getting like a lot of it's, – it's a lot easier for you to scale that system, of course – but it sounds like the challenge there, at least like the thing that I guess I would be most worried about is not necessarily being able to like anticipate when you might need to access data from two tenants at the same time uh, right. or something. Uh, so you talked a little bit about like how you have this central kind of database that's sort of like the brain of the whole app that kind of fires things off to the right database depending on like who the current tenant is and stuff i'm interested in learning a little bit more i guess about strategies i guess for like migrating data from tenant database servers back into that like main database server if things change such that oh you know shit we really need to have all this stuff in one table because we need to do reporting across tenants or you introduce some new feature that, that causes that. Is that something that like you've, you've run into and had to deal with? Um, I've done it the other way, taking a single database and splitting it into multiple. And that is by far the much easier way to, you know, migrate between these two strategies. Uh, mostly because when you think about IDs and unique identifiers in databases, normally it's, you know, uh, a long integer and they're just incrementing. Um, so it's easy to split that out, but if you've multiple databases um, and they all start at one, you know they're all going to have keys that conflict with each other. So you'd have to use something like a UUID or have some type of naming scheme where you prefix it with a customer uh, number or something like that. Um, so it's definitely a challenge to bring it back in. 
Um, but in, in certain cases, and we had to do this a couple of times just for kind of the uh, the back end reporting for our own team uh, at the at my previous employer, where we uh, basically just had kind of a batch uh, table that we uh, ran, you know, cron jobs on every night and just kind of totaled data and brought that back into kind of the single database uh, for reporting. And you you could use any type of back end for that, but um, yeah, you would just bring that in uh, into kind of a single reporting database or, you know, into a specific table in your shared database and use that for reporting. So um, it's really, you know, it comes down to it again, is the type of business you're in, the type of data you have, um, what you really you need to do with it. A lot of times that writing that reporting layer where it migrates data or, you know, coalesces it all up into one table um, is a lot easier than maintaining you know, all of those different where clauses and things like that. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So here's what Paul, the founder of CircleCI, had to say about one of their favorite features of Rollbar and how it helps them keep things running at CircleCI. Before we used Rollbar, we used a different error tracking service, and we were shopping for a new one. And so we did the, the tour and looked at uh, Rollbar and all of its competitors. And it was it was really the feature set of Rollbar that was super impressive and that made us go there. In particular, the people tracking, I think, is, is really, uh, it's not just a great feature, but it also kind of speaks our language because we're very focused on making sure that customers are happy. We want to make sure that we have like an individual understanding of what happens to each customer. So the fact that we're able to click on this customer is experiencing a lot of bugs and to be able to follow the, the progression of bugs that they've been experiencing is very important. If we get an email from a customer and the customer says, you know, your your website keeps glitching on me and being able to to go to Rollbar and to say, okay, you know, this individual customer, this is how they're experiencing the site. Because otherwise you, you have to give like an overall state of things and overall things are looking good because if they weren't, we'd be dealing with it. So I've been using Rollbar a lot lately on my SaaS app, Nitpick CI, and loving it. Uh, if you want to check it out, you can head over to rollbar.com slash fullstackradio, and you can use their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. So check that out, and uh, thanks again to Rollbar for sponsoring Fullstack Radio. So say you're building something that was like the Stripe example of like a multi-tenant app where there's still like a shared login across like uh, different tenants. Is that an approach where you would still be like inclined to try and take a multi database approach to an application like that? Or or what like requirement, I guess, in terms of shared data in that sense, like starts to really want to push you to a shared database approach instead of a multi database approach? Because at least as far as I'm understanding, anyways, it sounds like for you, you want to go multi database if at all possible, because it sounds like that has um, had more pros than cons for the situations that, that you've run into. Am I yeah, understanding for, that right? Yeah, so so for that situation, it was definitely um, a pro to go multi-database, um, also because we had a bunch of marketing functionality, and, I mean, each client would have, you know, tens of gigabytes of data for their marketing, you know, all the emails they've sent and uh, click-throughs and things like that, all kinds of documents and things. Um, so it really made sense to segment that data. Um, also for another reason was that a lot of our customers expressed interest in kind of going uh, the private white-labeled instance. Um, so they might be able to host it on their own Amazon account or have it within their own data center for, you know, compliance reasons. Um, so in that case, we would be able to take that database, spin them up a web server, 
and just throw that database wherever without doing some complicated export mm. yeah. uh, script that would have to take all of their data and all the relations out and put it into its own uh, schema. So it really made sense in our context, but you're right. I mean, in a lot of contexts, the single database uh, setup makes more sense. Uh, it really just depends on you know what you're doing with that data and uh, you know how how you want to architect it there. In Stripe's context, I'm not sure if a multi-database setup would work well for them. Um, maybe for bigger customers, but it, you know they 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 tend to use a lot of you know unique identifiers and UUIDs instead. So that that allows them to shard a lot easier probably than most people because they architected it like that from the beginning. Uh, but a lot of people, you know, when you're first building something, you think it's not going to really take off, and then it just explodes, and you, you know, have to hire a hundred engineers and get moving fast, and that's where you start to run into problems. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I guess, um, man, it's it's really tricky to make the decision uh, for the application that like I'm going to be hacking on. Basically, the problem I found myself having is I waste way too much time doing stupid accounting and tax related stuff uh, for my stupid business. And every tool out there is not really, it's not purpose built enough, like for my needs. And I, I've asked a couple people about this and they just kind of laugh and say like any business of sufficient size will build their own accounting software. That is just like, I was a, just going to mention that <laughs> at, at some point, everybody, every application will send email and do its own accounting. Yeah. Um, so what I was hoping to do is build this tool that just like makes it really easy, um, to track things like my expenses and stuff and connect to even like Stripe webhooks so that when uh, I receive a payment, it gets logged and stuff like that, which I don't really see any of these other tools doing. But I know that like down the road, I'm going to be incorporating other uh, businesses with different partners and stuff. And it would be nice to be able to use the same tool to track the same sort of stuff in the same place. So it sort of made sense to me when I was planning it like, okay, well, I could try and build this app such that it was just an app where like me and my wife can just log in and we just like pretend that all the data in the database is our businesses, no matter what, right? There's no scoping. There's no anything. We just kind of assume that if the data is there, it's ours and we can see it. And in, in essence, that's basically like the multi database approach, right? Even if I was just building this app for just us and we never deployed like another instance of it or never made another database for anyone else to connect to. But then the other approach I was thinking was like, okay, if I want to be able to track my accounting stuff for this business and then maybe another business that I start with a friend or something, it'd be nice if I could just log in with the same account, do like the sort of Stripe thing and click a drop down at the top of the screen where I say, okay, well, instead of working on business A's expenses right now, I want to go track some stuff for, for business B. And um, it's tricky, I guess, to decide with only the limited information that I have so far about how the app is even going to work. Cause I don't really like doing too much upfront planning and design and stuff. I just kind of want to start building it and add the stuff I need as I need it. Uh, but it's, but it's a tricky decision to, to decide, I guess, like what approach is more practical uh, for my needs. So I don't know anything that you could share in terms of how you would go about making that decision, I think would be, would be really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you can always do the multiple database approach with the shared users. Um, where it really comes down to is how much would you want to kind of intermingle those two things together? Um, so, if you were running the finances for company A uh, and then you also have company B, is there ever a time other than kind of a dashboard where you might roll up how many 
things they've logged or their current balances and things. Um, is there ever a time where you would, you know, mix those two data sets together and do all kinds of complicated queries and things like that? If yes, then you most likely want to go towards the shared approach. Um, uh, if no, if it's just kind of roll up something you could cache on a dashboard, for instance, um, then a multi-database setup would probably work. Um, and then there's probably even a hybrid in there where you could have your own instance. Uh, think of it kind of like a Jira instance with multiple projects underneath, which would be each business. Uh, and then you could kind of, it's kind of a single database within a multi-database setup, which is kind of a uh, an even weirder hybrid, but it, it would definitely work. Yeah, that's interesting. So um, talking about the how you were saying, like you could still have multiple users that can like access multiple businesses while still using like a multi database setup what would like the database structure look like for that so basically you would have your users table in um oh wait so so you were, you were saying the second option there right kind of like the stripe setup where you were you know me and you could both have accounts and maybe we both have access to one business but we each also have access to separate businesses and maybe you also share a business with you know another person who has their own business uh that yeah. sort of thing yeah, so in that case, I would keep the users table in the shared database. Mm-hmm. Um, and then basically, depending on what context you're currently looking at, you would change that connection on the fly uh, with each request. Um, so in Laravel, for instance, uh, you can define database connections uh, kind of in real time as the request is going. Um, so in that case, when you re- realize, oh, you know, tenant or this customer is currently logged in as tenant one, you would just automatically connect to tenant one's database. Uh, and same with if they switch to tenant two, tenant three. Uh, and like I mentioned, for a dashboard, you might just roll that up in some type of report that you cache or something like that. Or um, you know, if it, if it's loading it with Ajax, for instance, you could uh, kind of do that one request to each tenant if if they had a separate URL to just grab that data. Yeah, if you even needed that data, I guess, right? Right. So you would have like a main shared database that has like a tenants table, which is just like a list of tenant IDs, maybe like the company name or whatever, and then possibly like what their subdomain is or something, if that's how you've decided to sort of set up the app. And then also like your users table would be on that shared database where each, and I guess you'd also have to have some sort of pivot table too on that shared database that let you sort of map these users between businesses including maybe any roles that they would have or anything like that yeah that makes a lot of sense to me it's interesting that i like the idea of like you do something with like a multi-database setup like this um but you also have this this shared database which i think like when you're just sort of naively thinking about okay do we build a shared database multi-tenant app or do we build a multi-database multi-tenant app it's easy to sort of forget that there's always going to be this shared database piece in the multi-database setup which creates a lot of interesting opportunities for you know how you can make some data shared and some data uh, not shared and I think this is like a good example of how you could support one option or the other while still using like a, a multi-database setup yeah definitely and, and it really depends on the data you're using too so for instance uh, say you had some type of breach uh, and you expose the users table, that's not as big of a deal as you exposing every business's account, you know, full accounting log. Um, yeah. So, you know, getting somebody's email address and hashed password versus getting every item in their accounting and all of their vendors and invoices and everything else, uh, which might be in those, you know, multi-database setup versus, 
you know, just the user's log uh, from the single database. So, yeah, yeah it, it kind of separates concerns and adds a little bit of security there. Um, you can definitely test the uh, the piece that switches between databases a lot more. That you can you can test, you know, thirty or forty points where you might have to do scopes or where clauses and things like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think a question that maybe a lot of people would have that don't have a lot of experience with building an app that way is um, if there are any like performance considerations or anything when you're doing like a multi-database setup instead of like a single shared database. Um, I mean, there definitely can be in terms of if you're using, if you have, you know, tens of thousands of uh, databases on a single database server, I'm sure there are some you know, open file uh, restrictions or connection limits and things like that. Uh, but those are all things that uh, I, I believe you could tune. Um, and you can. Uh, what's nice about that multi-database setup is when you start to hit those, you just fire up another small database server. You don't have to, you know, go to Amazon RDS and get a, you know, 128 gig uh, uh, database instance and then replicate that. You can basically just go get another you know, 16 gig and another 16 gig. And when you when you do that, you end up creating more redundancy. So if one database server has an issue, it might take down 10% of your customers instead of 100%. Um, so it, there's a lot of things you can do there to, you know, separate concerns and add redundancy. Um, also, you can have uh, something we did before was uh, we'd roll out features to certain customers and migrate their database um, and basically all the other customers would be on kind of the production and you'd have another customer on kind of this beta. And once it was ready, you kind of just roll the migration out to everybody else. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, that sounds so, like it would actually make that strategy simpler too, because I know if you're trying to do like a big database migration on a shared database, that's going to affect everybody. You have to be really, really careful while making sure that whole process is bulletproof. Like there was, I'll have to find this article. There's an article that Stripe released about like um how they do database migrations at stripe because you could to me stripe is such like an interesting fascinating example of an application where their like uptime is like so critical to the entire internet <laughs> yep. and um they just have like so many things that they have to take into account that me running some rinky dink application i don't have to worry about as much right like they have to be able to basically migrate data and have everything work the entire time like they can never just like put it down for maintenance because now all of a sudden you have all these people who rely on stripe to even make money as their business and it's not reasonable or i mean i'm sure stripe could do it if absolutely necessary but it's a really preferable from stripe's perspective to not have to basically disable their customers ability to make money when they need to make like a simple simple database change so it's really interesting to think about that idea of well if you have like a multi-database setup uh it's not too big of a deal to maybe pick uh some of your lower traffic customers or something who have like less serious needs where like it's a little bit safer to try something out for them and you know based on your relationship with that customer that if something goes wrong you know it's not going to be catastrophic like it might be for for someone else so that's pretty interesting and it's really it's really easy to roll back those customers as well because it's easy to back them up so it's a lot easier to back up one customer one database that's literally a sql dump um and re-import like that if something goes or something right 
and just re-import that if something goes wrong versus um, you know re-importing hundreds and hundreds of gigabytes and rebuilding indexes and doing crazy things. Uh, and back to your point about stripes and mi- their migrations, GitHub had uh, a recent posting or a recent series of posts on their engineering blog about how they do migrations, and they basically wrote their their own giant kind of tooling behind the scenes that uh, kind of replicates databases to uh, to read-only versions and then migrates those forward once it migrates them and does kind of this crazy orchestration uh, because they have, you know, obviously they can't go down either because no one in the world would be able to deploy anything because yeah. uh, we all rely on them now. Um, <laughs> Our decentralized version control has become like a centralized source of failure for all software. <laughs> right. So yeah, they, they have to do all kinds of crazy orchestration to make sure that even when they're taking people down, it's taking people down, you know, taking down like 0.02% of repositories at a time. Even, even then, that's a lot of repositories they're taking down. So there's a lot of craziness in... Uh, in those types of setups that you can avoid if your data is the kind of data that can be put in a multi-database setup. Yeah, that's really interesting. Something that I hadn't really thought of that I think would be one of those things that I would hit as soon as I try to build something this way is just like, I've never really worked on an app that had tons of different database connections, especially database connections to different servers and stuff. So how do you store that data and like kind of dynamically switch between it for each Tenant, are you storing like this is the IP address to the server that their database is on in the shared database, or am I thinking about that incorrectly? Or what what would you normally do? Um, yeah, you you basically, and it depends on how you want to, you know, how secure, how different you want to make these database servers. But um, basically, what we did in the past is you would have you know the tenant ID, and that would kind of we'd correlate that into some type of database name. So usually it was production underscore tenant underscore one, for instance, production underscore tenant underscore two, and that would just increment. So that was the database name. Uh, For the server, you would basically just have a host name in there. uh, And then if you had kind of a shared username password for each server to log in, you could do it that way, or you could add a separate username password per server, per client in the server. If you wanted to get even more uh, kind of in the weeds where uh, one user could only access one database, things like that. Um, so really, in, in total, you'd only be adding about five columns there if, if you did it the whole way. Um, but you could probably reduce that to even two if you if you wanted to keep it clean. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that's CodeShip. So CodeShip is a hosted continuous integration platform in the cloud that helps you increase your development productivity and ship to production more frequently. CodeShip lets you standardize your tooling and processes across your teams, speeds up your build times, and integrates into your existing ecosystem of tools. CodeShip is a great fit for your team, whether you're just trying to speed up the build times for large apps, or if you want to set up complex delivery pipelines for your microservices using tools like Docker, Kubernetes, and others. Forrester recently released their latest Continuous Integration Tools report, which provides valuable guidance into the rapidly growing continuous integration and continuous delivery market, and CodeShip actually scored as a top five continuous integration vendor in this report. If you're interested in reading this report and learning more about what makes for a great continuous integration and continuous delivery service, uh, you can check out the show notes for this episode and I'll have a link there for you. So if you want to spend less time managing your tools and speed up your software development, give CodeShip a try and sign up for free today at CodeShip.com. 
I've been a user of CodeChip uh, for many years for all the open source projects that I run continuous integration on, as well as private projects where I use CI, and I couldn't be happier with the service. So thanks to CodeChip for sponsoring the podcast this week, and back to the show. Okay, so I think like another thing that's interesting to talk about uh, that's not so much database related, but I'm sure is intertwined in there in some way, shape, or form, is just um, different strategies for kind of determining like who the current tenant is in terms of how you decide to do that in your app, whether that's through like a subdomain or through a cookie or through, uh, you know, whatever. So I'd be interested in knowing um, from you, like what you kind of consider the viable choices to be um, when you're trying to, you know, determine what tells the application who the current uh, tenant is and why you might decide to pick one approach over another. Yeah. So, there's kind of three big ones. Um, one would be the single domain, you know, everybody logs into the same page. So that that would be your Stripe, that would be uh, your GitHub. For instance, you go to github.com and you log in and you have access to all of your tenants and or you have access to all your organizations and, you know, accounts there. Um, that uh, works pretty well, um, but it doesn't allow you to kind of split out um, those accounts to separate groups of servers. If you had, for instance, an enterprise set up for one customer versus another. Um, so the, the second kind of one and the one I, I think is the better one in general, uh, depending on your user base is a subdomain. So you'd be able to say, you know, acmecorp.yourapp.com. Um, and that allows you to basically have, you know, separate logins or shared logins. Uh, you could have shared logins between across subdomains if you wanted. Um, but that also allows you to, for instance, if you had customers in the U.S. versus the uh, versus Europe, you could have uh, separate, you know, customers hosted on DigitalOcean New York, for instance, yeah. uh, and then have customers uh, hosted in Frankfurt, Germany, uh, and kind of keep their data separate and uh, just with DNS point them to the correct cluster of servers. That's interesting. Um, so, that, so if you're taking really nice that approach, obviously the multi-database approach sounds better in that regard because you can co-locate sort of, you know, people's data closer to where they're actually going to be accessing it from. But you're still going to have that like shared database that you have to hit on maybe every request or maybe not every request, I guess, depends on how you have that set up. So would you have like two instances of that and you would kind of shard between them based on the location you could, of the you could do that you could do some type of replication um but really depending on what you're doing um you might even be able to just get away with having two really two instances of your application um if you really wanted to um but you could do that that gets weird if they want to move to a different region or something like that um but yeah you, you could really just host multiple versions of it you could uh, have a replication that you know keeps users in sync or keeps posts in sync or whatever you needed to do. Um, but for instance, uh, you know if if it's an enterprise customer and they're getting too large, you could really send them to their own web servers if they wanted to, you know to pay you extra money. You could have you know an enterprise plan that has dedicated web servers and dedicated database server, and really they're kind of in their own you know uh, firewalled world over there. Uh, and it would make it really simple to move their data in and out because, you know, you're controlling it. It's all, you know, within your purview of, of everything. So totally. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so do we, do we leave any other options that we haven't talked about in terms of, um, how you would determine the current tenant? So we said basically 
uh, shared domain that everybody uses. You log in during that login process. You figure out, okay, well, you know, user A, well, this is the company that they belong to. So that's the tenant that we're going to scope everything to. Um, the other option is using a subdomain where you can just kind of glean from every single request without having to kind of check what company the user belongs to in the database. Well, this is the the database that we should be comparing it against. Um, did you say there was a third option or do we? Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's one that is more white labeling. Um, so, you know, you could think of it as accounting software dot acme.com for instance uh, and that would allow your customer to completely white label the process so if they for instance have customers logging into their app um, on you know and you're kind of just the service provider behind the curtain um, that would allow them to completely white label it have their own domain you know you could remove branding things like that um, and that that would typically work best for multi database setups um, yeah. just because you're going to be routing things over DNS, and that gets weird having multiple domains coming into one load balancer, for instance. That's then uh, basically then that then that's rerouting them to different domains and things like that. But um, yeah, I would I would see that working best for multiple database setups. Totally makes a lot of sense. One of the questions that had me kind of thinking harder about this multi-tenancy stuff and realizing there was like more decisions at least to be made, if not just more complexity in general was like I was thinking about this accounting app. I was thinking about just what's like the most simple example of something someone could do with it. And the one I came up with was logging a new expense. So you have a receipt from a business lunch or whatever, and you want to log it in the system. And I was trying to think through like, what are all the different ways that I could craft this post request that's just storing something in the system that tells the application kind of like who the current tenant is, right? And this is kind of like really related to that, that question we were just talking about. Um, but I was sort of surprised at like how many different ways I could think of <laughs> to do that and and kind of like the struggle to, to just decide on something that, you know, made the most sense because at its most sort of, dynamic isn't the right word, but sort of uh, at its most like explicit and not managing any global state or anything, you could have you know, the tenant ID gets sent in with that post request, like from the front end, you know, and then that validation can be done on the server to determine, well, is this person allowed to create expenses for this tenant or whatever? Um, at another level, you could just have it be part of, you know, the URL and not just like data. So I know Basecamp, for example, works this way where every URL has like the, the company ID as like a URI segment, not as like a subdomain. So then you would, in like a Laravel sense, right, you're going to get this like route parameter passed to every single controller action basically that you ever see uh, in your entire app. And you have to either, I guess, look up the tenant from there. Um, or another approach would be using something like a subdomain where I guess with Laravel, you would still get that as like a route parameter, but it had me sort of thinking about different ways that you could write a middleware or something that sees like what the tenant is based on the subdomain. And then uh, you know, put something into the session or some shared piece of state somewhere. So I don't know what I'm really asking, but I guess what I'm asking is something <laughs> like, what does it look like to you to, in your code, sort of like determine who the current tenant is? Would you piggyback off of like, you know, the off class in Laravel for something like that? If you're building it as a Laravel app, would you get it from some other place? I'm just kind of curious of what some of the considerations 
for that are and like how you've decided to approach that sort of thing based on your experience? Yeah, I, I've mostly done them as middlewares uh, that talk to some sort of service provider to handle switching, you know, the database. Because uh, also you have to consider you're not just switching database, you might be switching the cache, uh, like the prefix in a cache. Because uh, you, you know, you might have, you know, 100 customers and they all have a user ID 50. You don't want to have, you know, pull the cache from the wrong user ID or from the wrong tenant. Um, so I, I've typically used middlewares just because it's kind of, happens way before the controller. Um, so anything you would be doing in the controller to kind of query things ahead of time, even a constructor, you would, it would the database would already be switched or you'd already set that context. Um, and then I kind of use helper classes when I'm trying to access that, those, you know, data, that shared data, for instance. So if users, for instance, you might, um, when I'm trying to access that, uh, they have a global scope already applied, and that talks to whatever the service provider had set. So it already knows what the tenant ID is. And if I need to switch that or get all, it's a it's an explicit action. Like I actually have to, you know, use a specific method. So it's kind of safe by default. Um, and then, you know, if I really need to show everything, then I can. But you know, the safe by default, no one's ever, ever gotten fired for showing two little data but showing too much you're gonna you know you're gonna expose some things so uh typically that's how i handle it um but maybe maybe that's the explanation of why half the time paypal is like missing transactions that i'm looking for (laughs) (laughs) yeah probably um so that's actually interesting that you touched on the cash thing because it kind of leads into what i think is uh, another kind of interesting area to talk about which is just what are sort of the impacts of building an application like this on other services and things that you integrate with and things that you need to to take into consideration like when you're storing people's files on an s3 bucket or uh, you're sending email for people um, you know all sorts of different services and stuff that you normally interact with Um, it's hard to anticipate having not done it what are some of the you know impacts of building a multi-tenant app on the way that you talk to and work with some of these other tools and services yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned files. Uh, that's a big one. Um, I would definitely recommend not having just a single folder where you throw everything. Um, it's much nicer to, you know, if you're if you have an S3 bucket that is, you know, document uploads. Uh, the first thing in that should be folders with the tenant IDs or something similar to that. Uh, reason being that if you if the client ever says, hey, we want to take all of our data and leave your service and we don't want you to have any of it or something like that, they just want to export everything, it's really easy to write an export based on you know a folder prefix than to write a database query that pulls all of the file names and then loop through those and do all kinds of craziness. Um, and then also if you you know, if you start segmenting your service, even on those levels where your customer can have their own S3 bucket, it's really easy to, again, write a command that segments it based on the file prefix and then just copies that data right over. Um, so definitely files, uh, that's something to watch out for. Um, and then uh, the next one would probably be search. So, uh, you know, you're going to have to have separate indexes, uh, or you should, um, because within search, you then would have to add those, you know, those uh, fields like tenant ID, and that could bloat your indexes. And but if you're basically switching indexes like you were a database, it makes those indexes super small and super fast. They don't have to, you know, find the keyword and then remove everything else, um, or vice versa. So 
Uh, search is another big one. Cache, I already mentioned. Um, a big one actually is webhooks and external services. So you, t- you mentioned Stripe. Um, Stripe allows you to send in kind of uh, whatever identifiers you want when you create a payment or create a customer. Uh, that's the perfect time to send your tenant ID along with that. Um, and that way, when Stripe sends you a webhook, uh, they're going to include that tenant ID in the webhook. So you'll immediately know where to route things. Because um, even if you have a subdomain set up on your application where it's acme.yourapp.com, uh, Stripe only will send to one URL. So what I've typically done is set up a webhooks.myapp.com, and that just kind of aliases to kind of an administrator account. Um, and those webhooks then know to look for uh, those keys in the JSON payload, and then they switch the context the same way that the subdomain usually would. Um, so that's another big thing is making sure that any external providers, you know, things like Mailgun, for instance, uh, that you're sending those identifiers or having some type of correlation in your database in the shared table where you can look up, you know, hey, I got this request in with this random, uh, you know, uh, email ID, for instance, where does it belong? Um, now, in a shared database, that's a lot easier to handle, uh, a single database, I mean, because uh, you can just look it up in your database. But if you're using the multi-database setup, uh, that's definitely something to consider prior to you know, building those features. Yeah, that's that's one that I might, I probably wouldn't have thought uh, to have to deal with. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting to talk about some of these, like, you know, what are the huge challenging obstacles that you would never would have imagined that are going to be big problems until you start building it? I mean, that's the nature of like everything we ever do, right? Is you underestimate everything because you never really understand what the complexity of things are until you run into them. Uh, so that's why it's awesome to be able to have, uh, to be able to have conversations with people like you who have uh, done this stuff and, and kind of piggyback off of your experience. Yeah. And one, one other thing I would mention there is, uh, on the shared side or the single database side, um, one of the co- big cons actually is the inability to use off-the-shelf uh, packages. So, for instance, if you are loading in some type of activity feed package, that activity feed package is thinking in terms of the, you know, a self-hosted type app where it's all, you know, you're not splitting it out or, or anything. Um, and that might have migrations to set up a database. Uh, and you would then have to add your own tenant ID field to it. And not only add it, but then you would also have to kind of maintain that and modify code and override make sure that- Override different things. Right, and, override classes yeah, and things like brutal. that. What's really nice about the multiple database setup is once you bootstrap that connection, uh, as far as any other plugins or anything are concerned, it's just a single you know, user app and it doesn't really care how anything's uh, set up. So that, that's definitely one of the big things uh, that was for us is we were using a lot of third-party packages and you know modifying all those and then keeping on top of them is kind of crazy. So that, that was really nice because packages could just do whatever the packages wanted to do and it really didn't impact us whatsoever. Awesome, yeah, love it. Okay, well, uh, maybe that's a good place to, to start wrapping things up. Is there um, maybe any like last words or uh, resources or, or anything that you think would be uh, worth sharing for people who are about to start on a multi-tenant uh, application or are maybe facing challenges uh, with the one that they're working on and uh, want to learn more about this stuff? Yeah, sure. So I, my in closing kind of remarks here, I would say uh, the biggest consideration for you is if you're considering a multi-database setup, if you have to share data between the two, uh, between t- uh, tenants, that's something to seriously consider. You don't want to, 
you know, kind of shoehorn yourself into a corner and then not be able to merge that data back in easily. Um, so definitely take that in consideration. Um, I'm, I'd be happy to answer anybody's questions if they, if they have any specific ones. Like I said, it all really depends on your use case and everything. Uh, so if you want to hit me up on Twitter at my username is just at Tom Schlick, um, you know, anything like that, I'm, I'm always happy to answer questions. Uh, and then there's a ton of packages, uh, already out there for, uh, you know, every framework you could imagine. I know Rails has them. I know Django has them. I know Laravel has them, uh, Symfony, everything. Um, so, Basically, just searching multi-tenant packages, you'll probably find some. Uh, so that, that's a good place to start for your framework of choice and then kind of go from there on the implementation. Awesome. Well, uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show to chat with you about this stuff, Tom. Thanks for asking or sorry. Thanks for answering my questions and, uh, you know, kind of sharing your experiences. Yeah, yeah, no problem. It was great to be on. Uh, so for anybody who is interested in uh, show notes for this episode, they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 80. Uh, if you want to leave us a five-star review over on iTunes, feel free to go and do so. Uh, anything less than five-star will be rejected. And <laughs> thanks to uh, Rollbar and Coachup for uh, sponsoring the podcast this week. See you next time.